Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 festival podcast, Chessie Henry, Earthquakes and Family Ties, proudly presented by Pegasus, supported by Trevor Hone Builders and VUP. The central event of Chessie Henry's insightful family memoir, We Can Make a Life, is the February 2011 Christchurch earthquake. Chessie's father Chris, a Kaikoura-based doctor, crawled into makeshift tunnels in the collapsed CTV building to rescue the living and look for the dead. In her remarkable new book, We Can Make a Life, Chessie interviews her father, considers the psychological cost of heroism and the meaning of home, and asks how a family can make a life in Africa, Tokelau, and the shaky South Island. Chessie Henry and Chris Henry appeared in conversation with Bronwyn Hayward. Kamehameha Kia Koto. A very warm southern greetings on a very freezing night. Uh, I'm Bronwyn Hayward from the University of Canterbury, and it is a real pleasure to see that so many people are here to welcome a new book into the world. Uh, and it is a bit like a birth, this book. It's um, by writer uh, Chesie Henry, who's and I've just discovered two minutes ago that this is the first time that she and her dad, Chris um, Henry, have talked about this. Um, the book, most of you won't have read it because it has talked about this in public, I should yeah, say. It's we talked about it beforehand. Quite <laughs> <laughs> a lot of conversations yeah. elsewhere, which we're hoping to hear a bit of. Because a lot of people won't have read the book yet, uh, I initially thought to say, oh, the book's about earthquakes and family relationships and mental health and life. And then someone said, no, it isn't. So it's not about that at all. It's about personal relationships and it's very funny. We thought, however you take from this book, maybe a good way to start is to hear from Chesie herself. Would you mind reading a wee bit about some of the yeah. unexpected part of it? Yeah, so I've got a little reading to start off with. Um, and I chose this reading because I thought it's, it's kind of a cool um, introduction to Dad and I's relationship, which I think is quite a big part of this book. And... Um, Dad's probably going to cry. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. India. It was dark when we arrived, nearing midnight and an oppressive 35 degrees. From the window of our taxi, I watched the streets speed by, the roadside draped with wild dogs, wet sores oozing through their fur. Our hotel, an hour away, had a black tiled floor and a dry airlessness, the air conditioning roaring and icy. We staggered around, showered, and fell heavily into sleep, my neck aching from where my head lolled about on the plane. In the morning, I woke to the sound of car horns. I had been travelling since March 2010. I'd left New Zealand the day after my birthday and spent a month backpacking up the coast of Australia, a blurry, beer-soaked, sunburnt trip. I met my father in Sydney, and from there we travelled onwards, India beckoning. We had decided to spend six weeks together, just the two of us on a shoestring budget with a two-man tent, no plans beyond the morning ahead of us and a vague hope of travelling north to go hiking in the Himalayas. I carried walking shoes, a sleeping bag, a small collection of my mother's old festival clothes, long skirts and linen shirts, a purple striped sarong. We ventured outside that morning and ate mango, sliced in front of us by a street vendor with a machete. It was hot, 
the sweat on my skin turning streaky black where it met the dusty air. I was amused to find my father transformed in this setting, raising his eyebrows at me in invitation as we passed street markets, food carts, dilapidated temples. He wore a headscarf that I'd never seen before, but which he had obviously thought to pack. And as we walked, he stopped to purchase a beaded yellow fabric shoulder bag. Are you a hippie now? I asked him, and he shrugged, happy. How strange that Delhi, this chaotic city, matted wires looping from street lamp to street lamp, the crush and noise of cars and animals, could bring out such a calmness and joy in him. We headed north, winding our way up into the snow and mountains. We stayed in tiny villages where women with chapped cheeks bought us spicy chai, both of us bedridden by altitude sickness. We hiked way up into the Indus Valley with a guide, sleeping each night crushed into our tiny tent with our monstrously large packs and splashing our faces with icy water in place of showers. We ate boiled eggs, roti and spiced potato. We drank endless cups of tea and bottled water. The walking was difficult, partly due to altitude and partly because my training for it had consisted of beachside beers and Australian hostels. <laughs> there were two other people in our group, a French mother and daughter, both incredibly fit. Dad and I made silent, pained eye contact as we watched them skip up steep, winding goat tracks, the two of us staggering along behind. Our trip was seriously badly planned. We were travelling at the wrong time of year, arriving at either the very beginning or final days of the tourist season wherever we went. The weather swung from wildly hot to snowy and to wet. We didn't mind that, we had no agenda. We skipped the temples and churches, elephant parks and organised activities, parking up instead in tiny restaurants and waiting to see what came out. Still up north, we hired an Enfield motorbike, Dad driving us through rocky mountainous desert while I clung on the back, trying to take photos with his camera as we bounced along. We stopped at random, once getting invited to what we thought was a party but turned out to be a lavish funeral. We took a perilous bus journey down to Kashmir, rocks skittering down the sheer drop as we wound our way over the icy mountains, the horn blaring our arrival as we swung too fast around blind corners. In Srinagar, we stayed near the water and paddled a canoe up to floating markets, watching birds settle on the vast lake like a fleet of tiny boats. We travelled south by train. At some point along the way, we stopped really talking and communicated mostly in observations, our conversations revolving happily around food. We ate giant crepe-like pancakes with spicy peanuts and so many mangoes that I would often have to lie down afterwards, never learning my lesson. We fell into a rhythm of admiration for the beautiful country we were traversing, the openness of the people, the harshness and richness of life there. I watched as Dad's hair grew light at the tips, his skin turning dark from days under the smoggy sun. In Goa, we hired scooters and roamed the beaches, amazed by all the tourists' bodies spread out across the beach, so exposed after our weeks in the traditional north. We danced at a beach rave, drinking dirt-cheap gin and tonics while trance music pulsed across the sand, green and red lights swimming over the throngs of shirtless tourists. Is this your boyfriend? asked an English girl with long dreadlocks wearing just a bikini. No, I laughed, he's my dad. He's the best, I felt like adding, but it would sound lame, and she had already lost interest, her eyes <laughs> flicking across the party as she sipped her lurid slushy. We spent afternoons in a beach shack called the Shore Bar, playing games of rummy while Dylan's hurricane played on repeat. Dilip, who owned the Shore Bar, took a liking to us and would grin from ear to ear when he saw us coming, holding aloft two Kingfisher beers with slices of lemon, Indian Coronas, he proclaimed. 
I loved those shore bar sessions, sitting in silence with our cards, watching the sun set into the ocean. Dad would despair of all the dodgy tattoos we'd see on other tourists. Look at her, he'd say. What's she gonna put all over her thigh? Is that an elephant? I'd tease him for only pretending to be a hippie, for still wearing the shoulder bag. He'd grin, green eyes and crooked teeth, holding up his beer to his cheek to cool it down. I felt like I was meeting the person my mother traveled with all those years ago in Africa, someone content and at ease, his best self. While we biked around one day, I was reminded of a story I'd once heard about a woman who posed naked for a friend's photography project. She was so nervous to show the photos to her mother, but when she did, her mother cried and said, I haven't seen your naked body since you were a little girl. As the days rolled by, I could feel an ancient closeness coming back to us, some long-forgotten childish unselfconsciousness. Even at the time, I was aware of how precious those days were, sleeping side by side, dancing together, the same way we would have when I was a kid. I loved seeing that version of him, that unfolding, so new to me. I could also see, with some sadness, that the further from home he went, the more himself he seemed to feel. And I knew what that meant for our family, always having to share my father with the dream that taunts him, setting off, sailing into the inky ocean, the potential of places far from the humble routines of home. Sitting across from him in India all those afternoons, I felt almost as though he was floating, an infinite sky above his head, buoyant on a salty sea. <laughs> so, so I was going to come more gently into how intense this book is about relationships, <laughs> but we've kind of gone straight in. So it is, it is a very intense relationship, both of all of your family, but especially of your father. And sorry, Chris, we're just going to talk about you That's for a minute. <laughs> <Just so, yeah. laughs> Paula, um, Morris talking earlier today, talked about how hard it is to write about your family and that most people normally write about their parents when they're dead. Yeah. Thankfully, you're not. <laughs> Very thankfully. Yeah. Um, so what sparked you to write this and what were you worrying about? Because it is a very intensely personal reflection sometimes. Yeah, it is for sure. And um, someone actually described it to me the other day as like more of a, a love story um, and that it's a love story between mum and dad in the first part of the, well, the whole book. Um, and then also kind of a love story between them and I in a way. Um, and I think, yeah, it definitely is a very personal, emotional story, but I think... Um, it was not, you know, it's not a um, negative or exposing story. So I think that was made it easier to kind of tackle it because it was going in with tenderness rather than with like, you know, a desire to kind of analyse. I think I was, yeah. But the, the memoir started because, um, yeah, I was actually kind of watching Dad mainly in his, in his role as a rural GP. That's where it really started. And, um, and kind of just, yeah, feeling really frustrated about um, the way that system was, I felt, letting him down, um, the sort of medical health system. And, um, and also, we'd just been through the Kaikoura earthquake, so we were kind of moving through that emotional process. And I just sort of thought, yeah, I know there's a story in here, but I wasn't really sure what it would be. And um, halfway through, I admitted to my friends that I was, I'd, it had turned into a book about myself. <laughs> and I was like, this is a disaster. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, a, it's a definitely a, a family memoir. I think we've settled on. So what does that feel like, Chris? I mean, the book begins with a very dark and very personal part that you've written. So what was it like to see yourself written through the eyes of your daughter? 
Yeah, it's, um, no, well, it's been, it's been quite an interesting learning experience for <laughs> Esther and I, actually. So now I think there was, the process was actually quite, quite fun and quite easy. I think the initial decision was, yep, you, if, you know, you can write whatever you like. And so it was a very, from our point of view, it's a very, from my point of view, <clears throat> you know, it's a very high trust thing. We, and Chelsea's a great writer, so we said, sure, you know, we'll talk about anything, and we talk about anything anyway. So it was no big shift from our normal being, and 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 it just got underway. I mean, of course, we had had no idea what it was going to look like, and actually, I don't think you had that much oh, idea. So so, and then it was sort of pieced together with phone calls here and the questions and text, and so it gradually went. But we had no idea what was growing. So it's been a sort of a, a, a and I didn't read it at all till it was after it was finished. So it's it suspicious was, that he hasn't heard it at all. Jesse's yeah. <laughs> been telling me out of pain. Yes, I, and then I, then I think I skimmed it in a you know, blind panic. Thinking, oh my god! You know, uh, I keep, I keep, she keeps mentioning bits. I'm saying, I'm sure that's not in the book. So I don't think I've actually, anyway. So, so it was a high trust thing. So it was actually, it was actually fine. But it is obviously quite, um, you know, bit, bits that are pretty uncomfortable. I mean, I think it's you know, it's, it's interesting seeing it. You, you know, your life reflected from your daughter, the good and the bad, and. We've, you know, like all parents, we've done some stuff well and some stuff we've been totally stuffed up. But it, it, it but it's, so it's been interesting, and, and and it's really made me think about the written word. I mean, that bit at the beginning of the book is really shocking for me to read, which is kind of ironic because I wrote it. But it, but it, it's a um, so it's that just than time, really. well, yeah, it is a time thing, and so it, it makes me you know, if I hadn't written that down, I would kind of gloss over it, or I would remember it with, in a different, different way. Things. So it's it's been quite so from that point of view. You know, that was real at the time, and that's, yeah. and that's a very powerful thing. So, it's, um... so we might come back to some of the substance mm. of within it, but if we think about how you wrote it, mm -hmm. um, Fiona Farrell's The Broken Book talked about, it is very hard, and I think a lot of people here, well, I know there are actually people here who've been firsthand through a lot of the experiences you've described, and it's, they are very huge things in people's lives, but it's very hard to actually write mm. a coherent narrative. So this book, uh, if you don't know, it's had really the most amazingly intense New Zealand writing incubation you could imagine, the International School of Modern Letters. You've studied it. Um, it's published by Victoria University Press. She was tutored by some of New Zealand's best writers. So in terms of a, a launch place to begin for your writing, it's both an incredibly privileged, but I imagine also quite daunting experience to begin. What was it like to start from there? Um, what did you take from those experiences? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like even hearing it back like that, I'm like, that is crazy that that happened. I was, uh, yeah, I think that um, doing my masters at the IML was really big for me because it just, I suppose, like taught me about process, you know, and I'd kind of been doing bits of writing before then, but it's a really different experience to then like sit down and push through a whole project. Because a lot of it, I think people imagine that it's this kind of inspired process where you're like, it just all came out. But like most of the time it's just like forcing myself to sit down and just like literally soldier on. And I'd be like, feel so stuck and just keeping on pushing through that. And I think, um, yeah, so. Is it, am I still answering the yeah, question? No, <laughs> um, you also published in a different way. Like initially, in order to get to the point at which oh, Victoria yeah. Press saw it, yeah. You are part of a different way of thinking about publishing. So you went very public about the book quite early on. Yeah, so I basically had this idea and um, for me it did feel quite immediate, you know, and we were kind of in the middle of all these things and it, I could feel that there was, I guess, like a potency in, in how immediate it was. And so 
um, I did kind of just want to get the story out and kind of get it out quickly. And so um, I actually ran a Boosted campaign, which is, I don't know if, if you're not familiar with Boosted, it's um, a platform, it's like a crowdfunding platform run by the Arts Foundation where you can essentially, um, you know, crowdfund money for a project. You have to kind of apply and have the project approved. Um, and then you've got 30 days to try and raise your target amount. And if you manage to raise that much, then you get the money, which was obviously, um, I'd been, you know, unsure if I sort of how I felt about that, but I'd seen other projects, you know, been, be funded that way. And it's, it's a pretty special to then have people that are invested in your project and they feel like they've been a part of it from the start. And so I really came around to the idea of it. And um, yeah, so I, I had a, a target amount and basically met it in days. It was amazing. I really, um, everybody was just like, yeah, um, yeah, really, I suppose, trusted that I could do it, which was amazing. But then you went back to a very professional publisher. And in this kind mm -hmm. of immediacy, there's often quite a pressure on especially young people or new stories to get out there. So what value did it have for you to work with a, a formal publishing structure? Yeah, so once I actually had the manuscript, um, I was really at a bit of a crossroads with it. I think I would, you know, it's a, it, was, it felt to me like a long time to be working on something just alone with no one kind of checking on you. And I started to kind of, I suppose the nerves had kicked in a little bit and I was feeling like, um, I don't actually know if this is any good and I've been working on it for so long. And, and so then um, I think I actually sent a panicked message to Elizabeth being like, what shall I do? And she said, look, if, how much have you got? And basically just send it to a publisher and see, what, take the feedback, see what they think. And, and that was a really um, amazing experience, like sending it to the publisher, having them basically back it. It just felt like the hugest relief and then kind of guiding me through. It just gave me a whole confidence in the book, I suppose, having someone else who was like, yep, you know, these are the strong parts. Let's push it towards this. It can be this thing. You know, it felt, it was great. It was a great feeling. Yeah. So just before we come to some of the bits that you pushed into and looked at, I mean, just one more question about the process. So it's, there's quite a few from a researcher's point of view, ethical dilemmas in there. Yeah. You're writing about other people's death mm -hmm. uh, and huge grief. How did you deal with that with your publisher? Again, that was like, there was a lot of stuff that I was really worried about, and that, you know, from uh, patient perspectives and just kind of, not, and also talking about mental health and just not wanting to come off it as an expert, you know, because I was really just writing my personal experience and I was concerned that um, I was kind of going to be make, making a faux pas that I didn't even know about. And so... Yeah, they were, we, we sent it off to lots of different experts and um, had a lot of help, particularly with the CTV chapter, um, just to make sure that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, as you said, it's just it's a full-on subject. But same with Tokelau, making sure it was culturally sensitive, um, making sure that Dad was protected in it as well, you know, because there just are roles that you have to follow, and, yeah. and that was amazing to have that guidance, yeah. So there are um, several big issues within this book. One of them is this question about heroism and everything. But um, just, I, I was intrigued to hear Helen Clark say she didn't even know what the imposter syndrome was. <laughs> uh, but that feeling that you are <laughs> perhaps not the person that you are thought to be yeah. is quite common, especially for women. Mm. But you're very upfront, Chris, about how discombobulating or disconcerting it was to be called a hero, and that's part of what you're trying to say. So what could you explain a little bit about that? Oil, yep, yeah, yeah. No, I can. Now, I've thought about that quite a bit. Um, yeah, that, that was a very... So this came about... This is um, 
years after the Christchurch quake, actually, I eventually got tracked down and uh, um, came into the public gaze a bit and, and got a the bravery medal. And that was a very confusing time for me, really, and coincided with a whole lot of other stuff. But it was, um, on the one hand, I think it was, it was, it was nice, to, I guess, to have acknowledged that it had been a difficult experience. I think that was, was good. It was good in, in, in so far as I could then say to myself, yeah, that was pretty difficult. And that sort of gave me permission to say that was pretty hard. So it's not that surprising that you're still kind of struggling with it. So that was kind of, I think, a helpful sort of bit of affirmation. And I but probably I, should interrupt for the people that yeah. don't know the it. Well, there are two big, there are several mm, big it's, but one right. of them is literally being the first person, being in the first group of people doing first response at, in the CTV building. Um, yeah. Yes, I should have said, well, yes, I should yeah. have said that, yes. So that, this bravery medal related to working at the CTV building with many other people. And, and so being singled out was, was difficult. But I think the whole idea of being, oh, that's brave or whatever, is, is we all found really, really uncomfortable because, uh, yep, sure, we did absolutely the best we could in, you know, in what was very difficult circumstances. But I certainly, in my memories of it, uh, you know, that it was, it was very hard. And at the end of the day, a lot of people died in that building. And, it, and it's, you know, so the sort of clap, clap, didn't you do well, just was a really sort of uncomfortable thing. Mm. So I think it was, it, was, it was quite a crisis point for several of us, I think, because yes. it just felt completely wrong to be saying, oh, well done, and we, because we felt, you know, I think we did as well as we could have done, but it's only human to look back and think, well, I could have, I could have done better, I could have stayed longer, I could have tried harder, you know. So I think it was a, it's a very, it is difficult. I think one of the things that struck me reading the book, reading that section was, as well as that description that you captured from the car journey when you just spoke, yeah, it also is a very helpful record of events, if we want to actually avoid or think about lessons for the future, it's mm. quite hard to have those times where you sit down and say, well, this happened, we struck this concrete, we didn't know, you know, yeah. this cluster of people happened to have fluorescent jackets, which was really lucky, One of, you know, we could, yeah. some very mm. practical things about disaster response, we often don't give ourselves enough time mm. to write about. You probably haven't had a chance to read it like that. Yeah, no, I've, I've sort of read it. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't portray myself as an expert in no, no, disaster in... or anything like that, I think. But it was interesting to write it down, and, and uh, it's taught me a lot of painful lessons, actually, but particularly around the value of debriefing. And that was... The funny thing was that was the very first time I'd ever told anybody, you know, the beginning-to-end story. And it was only because Jesse mm. bailed me up in the car drive and said, you know... Yeah. Start talking, Dad, and here's yes. the phone. And uh, so, which was odd, really, because no one had ever... It had never been appropriate to tell the whole thing, so I'd never even thought it through myself. So that was another written word moment for me, you know, when I just talked for three hours and we had quite an emotional kind of conversation. And then the next thing, you know, you, Jesse, laboriously wrote the whole thing out, typed it all out. But then to, for me to read that was... I was amazed myself. I couldn't even remember that I had remembered some of that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, was a, it was a very odd process. Um, and then Kaikoura, were you in Kaikoura at the same time? I've forgotten. Um, no, I was in Wellington. All right. So, yeah. But when Kaikoura happened, it's, a, it's pretty unlucky to be in the same yes. place for the whole of Canterbury is like this, twice. It, yeah. Did you find that you were drawing on that experience again? Or were, did um, they feel at the time two separate things because your yeah. own family, house and home and uh, communities it, it, involved? It, 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 they were, it was quite different. I mean, I certainly had that moment of thinking, surely not, this can't be happening twice. Um, so it was, it was a bit odd. And it, um, but but it, 
it was a, a little bit, well, it was different because the, the situation was different and it wasn't. Um, uh, but but it's, as I said, you drew an experience from before, and I've been, you know, I remember saying to one of the fire guys when we were in another collapsed building saying, I can't believe that here we are, kind of thing. But, but it was different then because it had this much more, after we were much more directly involved as a family. I didn't know how Esther and the other kids were, you know, so there's all that stuff. But the familiar, it was a familiar sense of no communication, no information, no one has got a clue what's going on. Um, you just have to deal with what's in front of you. I was at work, so it was, I was on call in Kaikoura, so I was at work, and the family were at home up the top of the Clarence Valley, which got cut off for several days. So, and Chessie was in Wellington, which actually wobbled more than Kaikoura, I think. Yeah. So, Chessie, um, these two incidents are the are kind of big ones that we, many of us, would have shared in different ways. Mm -hmm. But you also are writing about how, about disaster and loss from other points of view. So, your mum's story is in there. And yeah. do you want to say a wee bit about what you were trying to do yeah. telling that? Um, well, I think in a way, this was, it, you know, intentionally or not, I don't know, but it ended up kind of being a bit of an ex exploration of grief and in its many forms, you know, it was obviously this is a, you know, dad's experience of crawling into the CTV building was very dramatic. Um, but there was also, you know, this really, really personal, just domestic loss of our home. And, you know, it's about, um, I guess, like the rocky highs and lows of um, family life and of, um, you know, we then a personal loss that we had later that was just one person in comparison to this, you know, loss that Christchurch has been through with many people, you know. So it was kind of these different experiences, and I suppose giving them all a voice was something that I was thinking about. Um, and, yeah, I mean, um, we call it, um, it's being referred to now as sort of mum's experience, but it was, it was not just mum's, yeah. it was ours. But I think just that, yeah, that different feeling of um, maybe feeling your experience isn't as valid because it's not as dramatic and just kind of exploring that idea a little bit. So I think I really loved that part. I could understand your mum creating this very beautiful oasis of a place that's artistic and losing it. Because also after the earthquakes, I remember a group of Wellington policymakers coming down to debrief and some doctors spoke about their personal experiences. And I could hardly, I was trying hard not to cry. Mm. And as we left, I said to one of them, so what did you think of that? And they went, it's not real suffering. She was middle class. Yeah. And I remember thinking, and I wondered if you yeah. felt anxious writing this, that it would be... Yeah. I mean, I notice you very carefully do what most Christchurch people don't do. You talk around the schools. You, yeah. You, do, you, yeah. you note your privilege. Yeah. yeah. You note your privilege, but it's not about that. But was there an anxiety that you'd be judged, that this is not Absolutely. suffering? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's always plays in your head, like, how privileged I was to that time. And I did... I think I, you know, I do try and um, bring that up in the book and acknowledge it because it was definitely very real in my mind. Um, but, you know, in comparison to that, I then also had mum saying, oh, I, you know, I don't want to talk about it because, you know, it's not, it's not important. It's not, you know, it's just this. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm like, no, you're, you're really grieving and, and, and a, it's valid, you know, you should be allowed to grieve. And, and I think um, there was, yeah, just tensions there that, um, yeah, felt interesting, I suppose. And I think, yeah. And just before we leave this, um there's a couple of love, deeply moving bits. One is um, that you talk about your cousin, which mm -hmm. is really a family loss, mm -hmm. but also a kind. Of, there feels like a kind of a your 
um, brother Rufus plays a very strong role in your family in responding to that. Do you want to talk about yeah. what you were exploring there? Yeah, um, I mean, so our cousin Abby dying brought, uh, brought that into the book because I think it really highlighted to me, you know, when you have a, I mean, in Christchurch, so many people died and you then have this feeling of like, it's so big you almost can't comprehend it. And then having your own kind of very personal death, I suppose, well, yeah, um, it really like reminds you like, they just see a huge intensity of those losses. And so I think that happening to us, um, it, it, it kind of, yeah, it definitely brought it up for me again for Christchurch and how, um, and how really big that was and what it means to lose someone that's, you know, huge. Um, but yeah, Rufus definitely, I think he's doing some important timing over here, but he's a, a very important, um, yeah, he was, he was uh, huge in, in that whole process, I guess, just in that's like, um, I mean, I could talk about this issue. I don't know how deep we want to get into it, but yeah, um, having, people, having people maybe, um, you know, look at his situation and think, oh, that's a loss in another way as well. Um, and really, I suppose it's just that these situations are so complex and I think there's so much optimism <laughs> and grief all tied up in kind of these experiences of just family. Life, you know, so and that richness. Yeah. What you do manage to capture is the richness and depth that you get from life. Yeah, from admitting its vulnerabilities and the bits that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And from yeah. So finding yourself in a disaster is different from, if I may say, Chris. As a family, you have actually, as a parent, chosen to put your family in quite extreme events, <laughs> yes. which. Yeah. We'll either give them therapy or for their years or provide a great source for writing. Yeah. But now when you look at it, the, some of those family adventures were like quite out there. So <coughs> Someone warned me this might come up, that we might be <laughs> accused, cast, of, accused of very dangerous <laughs> yeah. parenting. Dangerous yeah, parenting. So, so it, yes, it was. Um, you're were there points to... at which you thought, oh, I mean, as a couple, were you looking for adventure? Were you trying to get away from Christchurch? No. Were you just looking for... A, an experience as a family? Yes, I think we were, it's a, I've got to take most of the blame for this. I think I was looking for an adventure, which was, yeah. which was my kind of default for position for a big chunk of my life. So, so I sort of was, um, but Esther was too, so we're, and we'd previously done some similar things. So we, you know, we thought it was a good adventure. I was a bit, dis I was a bit, I'd be the GP in Littleton, which I loved, I loved Littleton, and, but I just wanted to do something different. And, and so this opportunity to go to Tokelau came up and, uh, which is about as remote as you can get in the Pacific. And so it seemed like a great idea, but we didn't, uh, didn't give too much thought to the detail. And certainly you know, a few months later, when all the kids were lying there with dengue fever, you know, miserably <laughs> ill, and you know, the, the boys had a who's got the highest temperature competition that went on for about a week. You know, we, um, we, we did, we did, you know, that did cause me, cause me a little bit of angst. But I think, um, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, different experiences as being good, good family good fuel. Family. Um, well, coming to that practical thing of different experiences, it's very hard, going to a really basic question away from writing for a minute, it's very hard to get, get people who want to take these experiences, especially the rural GPs now. Uh, and you touch on it a bit, and we talked a little bit before this conversation about some of the, the ideas you wanted to have come from this book about ways that you could... I mean, what do you see as the future for rural GPs? You wouldn't necessarily choose to be in a disaster. You wouldn't choose to be so remote that your kids are, you know, in extreme ill health yeah. themselves and you yeah. are the only person for support. So what do you think about how are we going to sustain rural GP practices? 
No, well, that is a bit, that is, yes, that is one of my pet themes. So, no, I mean, I love rural medicine because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fantastic mix as, you know, because you're a bit, it's a kind of the James Herriot School of Medicine still, so you kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're the, the doctor, the ambulance, the ED, the counsellor. You know, so so I, I, love, I love the mix of it, but it, it, is, it, is, it is hard work and, and it's, people are discouraged, I think, because it seems a bit too scary uh, or, uh, you know, and it's really, really hard work at the moment, at least, because we're short of, you know, we're short of people. So what I hope comes as a general observation, I'd love to see rural health better resourced and funded and, and, and equity of access for people who live rurally. But that was a sort of separate issue. But that's, that's certainly um, something I care a lot about. Um, I, I think the other thing I was hoping would come out of telling our story, I guess, is that I think it's, it's good to be honest about the fact that life doesn't always go well. And I think it's been, you know, I had a real kind of crisis after the, well, actually, actually from the bravery medal, but the, and it was good, you know, I think it's okay to be honest about that and say that, you know, if you're having a tough time, it's all right to talk about it. So it's a kind of, um, although it's quite exposing, and, but I've had, we've had amazing feedback from people saying, it's fantastic you said that, and actually uh, this is what I want, you know, to help people talk about stuff. Did you find it helped you? I mean, when you were writing, were you conscious? Sorry to talk no, about you, Chris, I, but that you're writing around your father's burnout, yeah. or writing what it, the help? You know, what it, what did it feel like for you and your family as this is happening? Yeah, it was a strange process because actually, it really felt like my writing was having this kind of like immediate impact on what was then happening in real life. Um, because you know, like I, I think, I mean, I think this was this was triggered by the the sort of CTV conversation, but I think actually. There was, you know, when Dad's saying GPs are overworked and under-resourced, like that's, it's actually a seriously significant problem. And, and that was um, a years and years building up to this kind of eventual burnout. So although it was definitely triggered, I think, by this whole interview and the CTV stuff that came out, um, it's, it's actually, um, it wasn't just that. And, um, but so that was strange because um, we'd been kind of watching, you know, Dad, I think, just under this increasing pressure um, and it was just, it felt like it was just going to explode at some point. And then actually when I interviewed him about the Christchurch, the CTV, um, the, day, the CTV building, which I wasn't expecting that to all come out and neither was dad. And after that, um, the sort of actual collapse happened, you know, and which was actually a relief because it was, had, it was a long time coming. But, um, but it was, it was a strange feeling to have basic, I felt really guilty that I'd caused it because by bringing up stuff that, you know, was obviously traumatic. And so it was, it was a strange process writing the book. And that's in there. Then I'm writing in the book being like, <laughs> it's kind of like, now this is happening. It's now, it's turned into something else that I wasn't expecting. So, yeah, it was, it was very much like immediate stuff. Yes. So, I, I don't think either of us expected that. I, thought, I think it wasn't mm. a planned thing, was it? Exactly. I didn't it's just, it. <laughs> no, no, it just, it just happened because that we, it, it, you yeah, know, and, uh, it really did. So, when you're writing about uh, life and all of its warts and all. Um, what are some of the lessons that you learnt from both the editing, your training, reflecting now to actually lift this beyond a broken book, to actually start getting a narrative out, you know, life lived forward, understood backwards, as Julia yeah. says. But, you know, how did you get that to happen technically? Yeah, it was definitely a lot of um, stitching together. And I think, um, actually, that's where Holly, my editor, was really amazing because she really helped me give it shape, which is which was hard for me to sort of do at the time, being still so kind of absorbed in the whole situation. Um, but I think uh, what gives it shape is probably like a 
persistent underlying optimism. And I think that was, because I was really worried how to finish it, because I was like, this doesn't feel resolved. You know, we don't, I don't feel like we've kind of worked this out, but um, just that feeling of things carrying on ultimately. And, and so that was, you know, it, it kind of did give it a bit of an arc because through these different experiences, you know, you're still moving along and yeah. So moving along now, what, what's next? What are you doing at the moment? And where are you living? Not well Yeah, well, <laughs> um, having, I don't know, gone on and on about how they were going to do something really sensible this time once, um, you know, it was how reset. Yeah, is that what you mean? Do you, oh, so do we mean yeah, you, mum and dad? This time you. Oh, no, no, you could, no, no, no but tell no, us no. about your mum and dad as well. No, 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 I mean, you can let me you've written it. everything else. You might yeah, as well tell us the next, the next bit. That was about you, Chessie. Oh, sorry, I misinterpreted the question. Me, now, what am I doing? Yeah, what's next for you? Um, sorry. It's <laughs> about to just wrap out mum and dad for all of it. <laughs> Feel free to keep um, going. No, that's fine. Um, no, me, so I've actually been um, living in Oregon this year, in, in Portland, in the States, um, with a working visa, so just having a kind of overseas experience and um, doing a bit of writing over there and, um, yeah, kind of... Still Surviving Trump's America in the yeah. oasis of Oregon. I know. Well, it was. It's literally like I think I couldn't have moved to a more Wellington-like place, but it's been good. <laughs> it's been good. Um, what was the most fun about this book, and which parts are you most proud of? Um, most fun, I think, was um, yeah, just the interviews. Like that was so cool to be able to like sit down and and I didn't really realize until I was like playing them back. I was like, man, I'm so glad I have these records of me and my parents having these big conversations about their lives, you know, and I've got them on my, um, you know, I've got the, re the recorded version and, and suddenly I was like, I think these are the most precious things I own. Um, and, you know, like I interviewed my granny who's here now, but um, we talked and I was like, this is very, it suddenly felt like these really important conversations that I just hadn't had before. And so that was, that was cool. Um, and that I'm most proud of, um, oh man, I mean, I think I'm just proud of, of, like the the book, like, you know, we kind of, in the beginning, we, we were clear about what we wanted this book to kind of be and maybe to make people kind of feel, I guess that it was, you know, we're talking about vulnerability and that it's kind of okay to be vulnerable. And I've just had a lot of people message me saying, like, I don't know what I feel, but I feel really emotional. And I think that's, for me, that's like, man, that's, that's cool, just to kind of connect with your emotional I, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should be proud of the fact that you just capture mood, you know, there's moments there that just absolutely transformed me back to when you were little, you know. Uh, so I, th I think it's, it's, it's really atmospheric. And we did have some very, we did have, it was fun. I mean, it was a fantastic evening. <laughs> Give we or were, take the dinghy fever. And oh, the, no, well, no, I'm just yeah, going to yeah. say, we were talking about that, Esther and Chessie and I, uh, apart from that, all the children nearly died. But we were having, <laughs> we absolutely had hysterics. And you, partly you were riffing us out for being such useless parents, but the three of us, literally, but lying on the floor, yeah. kind of wrecked. And they were really funny it conversations. Was like, so it was funny. Stuff. So we've had some fun doing it. Yeah. And then Jesse's been you know, digging away at us, saying, "You remember how you used to?" You know, we were so. I think we were so overly liberal as parents. You know, she was reminding us of the moments we let everyone do crazy, stupid, climbing in the tree, <laughs> you know, kind of stuff. But anyway, it was good. Well, I wonder. We might come back, but do you want this? Might be a place to talk to do a little bit more of the reading from yeah. after. Yeah, I've yeah. got a, um, another reading if you guys can share with me. Um, so this one actually is um, a reading, it's just a short one, but um, it comes immediately after the interview uh, with Dad where we talked about the CTV building, so it's quite a heavy kind of part of the book, and so this is, it's literally called After, and it's um, just a little section. After. 
Christchurch was the backdrop to my childhood and then to my teenage years at boarding school. Afternoons spent catching the bus to Northlands Mall for rice balls and window shopping at Glassons, our white shirts sticking to our underarms as we swayed along in the after-school mob. When we were old enough to go out on the weekends, we'd head into Seoul Square with our fake IDs, bright-eyed from the RTDs we sculled in the botanical gardens. We would order lattes from coffee culture, drive to Wanaka or Mai Tai for New Year's, and spend our weekends trawling through the musty racks of Toffs, the second-hand clothing warehouse. In my last year of boarding school, we would drag our duvets onto the lawn and lie around in our pyjamas on the grass, eating grapes and crackers and talking for hours, everything ending and beginning at the same time. Christchurch doesn't feel like my place anymore. So many of the places I knew back then have changed, been lost and then rebuilt in a different way but I still carry Christchurch around with me. It never feels defeated. The city only seems to rise and rise, sprawling murals painted on the sides of red-stickered, half-destroyed buildings, new cafes appearing in abandoned car parks. This is awesome, my friend from Wellington said when we visited Christchurch one weekend, walking through the new high street, a whole community pushing their way through the cracks like wildflowers. Once in City Gallery, Wellington, I stumbled across an exhibition by the artist Julia Morrison called Meet Me on the Other Side. It felt strange at first, eerie objects and structures salvaged and reformed, taken out of context and made new. In some of the works, grey blobs, now dried and hardened, had oozed through wire or empty spaces, dripping over edges and pooling in lumpy masses. Monochromatic paintings hung on the walls, vast and textured, made from spilled liquor and silt replicating Morrison's alcohol cabinet, which had smashed in the Christchurch earthquake. Her studio had been in the red zone, and this series of sculptures found their roots in damaged objects, things abandoned and picked up again, transformed. Familiar items like plastic bags melted with silt from liquefaction had been suspended in cement and resin. The blobs were solid, but somehow still in motion. What is this? A little kid beside me asked. His dad replied, you know, I'm not really sure. I think that's how we all felt afterwards. Many people have talked about the art that comes after and the way, and it is very, it, it's sort of now that it's really, we're starting to really understand the art that has happened and the way that writing, art, all sorts of art has changed. Would you have written these books if you'd had the... Or would you have written a book now if you hadn't happened to have had these big disasters around you? Mm. Um, I mean, it's hard to, hard to say because I think probably naturally I'm just quite drawn to writing about myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think just, like, human... Ex you know, I'm, I, like a, I'm an emotional person, I suppose, and I think human emotion, which I think comes in, in big disasters for sure, but also just in daily life. And um, I think, I don't know, maybe I would have found a book regardless, but can't be sure. The one that's shelved at the moment? Yeah, the one that's sitting on the desktop. <laughs> <laughs> My master's thesis needs a lot of work. But. but when you talk about that urgency you felt before, yeah, what was driving that? Was it more your family? Um, yeah, so I think, I think just particularly this one felt more pressing because um, it, a lot of it was just really from frustration because I felt like I was sort of watching Dad, um, you know, crash and burn and it, it just felt he was being publicly acknowledged as being this brave man and, you know, it just felt this, this kind of intense 
contradiction to how he was feeling and, and how, um, you know, he was being kind of awarded, you know, it just, it was, it was just, um, I could sort of feel that there was a, a story and I suppose, um, yeah, like, I think, you know, Christchurch, Kaikoura, we've all been through a lot and um, there was definitely a feeling of, yeah, I would have, I wanted to write about it in the hope that, you know, it might be like a personal story that people would connect to, I suppose, because that feels important to me as well. Yeah, and yeah. no offence, Chris, but when <laughs> when <laughs> Chessie's writing this and she's writing about what's happening to you and she's writing about your what your wife and your sons are saying and you're in the middle of it not responding <laughs> in a way that you, you, it's like it, you feel the helplessness of the people around you not able to and their frustration, not able to shift the burden that is both on mm. you, that is a real burden of the structures you're in. But what was the point? Um, you talked about it being the story, telling the story to Chesi that kind of helped. But what was the point or at which you really started to feel you were getting help or somebody it was getting through? What, what really helped you shift from mm. that sort of denial to getting some help to get better? Yeah, that's, um, I just think about that. Uh, I, I think it, you, you just get this, I think, and this is true in sort of pressurised situations, or at least for me it was anyway, you just get more and more and more blinkered and you just keep on thinking, I can do it, I can just keep going, I'm somehow going to get through this. I said something the other day, it's a bit like, you know, how you fall asleep when you're driving, you think, oh, I'm going to make it to the next yes. service station, yeah? Mm-hmm. And we're not very good at, we're not very good at realising that we're that close to falling asleep. So it was a bit like that, so I was just ploughing on thinking, I'm really worn out, I'm really struggling, I'm really finding this difficult, but I couldn't, I, didn't know what to do and couldn't quite. And, and for Esther and, and the family, and all I'm sure all the kids were ringing each other saying, you know, we've got to do something to stop Dad going down the gurgler. So, so I, I was aware of that in the background, but I just could, I couldn't think of a way out of it. I guess that's what it was. And then it took a bit of a, which is a shame in hindsight, I'm older and wiser now, but it took, it took a bit of a crisis. And that crisis was, thank you very much, Jesse, provoked by uh, forcing me to open up. And, and, and then once I'd kind of let my guard down and I suddenly thought, I really feel, I'm so sad about that. I felt sadder in that moment about the CTV building than I had done in any of the intervening six years. You know? So it, it just suddenly, it was like someone had just undone the dam and it just went boom. And then, and then that, within about a week, that spilled into the rest of my life and I just completely lost my way at work and I just suddenly, you know, and then my mum, who's actually here now, my parents turned up and that was kind of like the final straw because which uh, which uh, which is really odd <laughs> which is a really funny thing to say age 57 you know but it suddenly you've got someone you you trust enough to say and I say this somewhere in that you know I suddenly felt oh they said how are you and I said bless you I'm bloody terrible and 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 uh, and and so it was a bit of a cataclysmic thing but it which is really you know and it's ironic because we spend so much of our time at work talking about mental health and wellness and yeah. You know, uh, and I thought I was doing okay, and I just wasn't. And it, so it, it took a bit of a, um, you know, it took a bit of a trip up to trip me up. And then, so that's kind of what happened. And then, as soon as, and of course, as soon as you share it, then that's that's a major step forward. And then you can say, well, actually, you know, I need I need some stop. I need to get some help. And you know, but I, I think admitting that we're stuck is the biggest problem. And, and you that, think the power of the of writing this and talking about it, um, not everyone can do that, but what role do you think you're going to be able to play in or reading that book will do for others in that situation? Yeah. and I'm, I'm definitely wary to come off as like a, this is how it should be, you know, we should all, you know, I don't know, it just feels uncomfortable because families are different, 
people are different, you know, it's not that easy for everyone to just say, hey, I'm struggling. But I think the point of this for me was just like, here's an experience we've had, you know, I think dad is a bit of a public figure, you know, not that he particularly wants to be, but he is. And I think it was just, um, it just felt like a good way to like explore that idea. Um, but in a, while it was just from my, you know, this is just my perspective. So I'm quite wary to say um, people should take something from it particularly, but I hope people read it and, you know, maybe just think about it would be enough for me. I yeah. think also just the cataloging, Chris, of, of what it's like to be a GP or it to yeah. be, you have a lovely description at the opening of the book of accidentally coming across your father having to deal with kids who've been in a terrible car accident and capturing what all parents know, that terrible feeling of as you drove there wondering if it was your own kids. Well, and then it's close to home. It was in our address, yeah. so I'd responded to the ambulance school thinking, I know that place, that is, you know, it, was yeah. it was right outside our house, which was kind of ironic. And you just described the accident scene but what struck me reading that was, that's just one day in a, mm. in a normal week. So what help, I mean, how much help do you feel that there is for Can GPs I, in that situation constantly in those situations of trauma? Yeah, I just want to interject. So we were just talking about this today because, you know, I think for Dad this is a hard question to answer because he's a really, really passionate rural doctor and he loves rural medicine. Mm. And so I think he's wary of coming off, like, you know, critical of a, um, you know, a a field that you love, but for us, I think from a family perspective, it's easier to, you know, you, you kind of have more of a um, leg to stand on and just straight complaining. But, um, you know, if we, like, the last two weeks, for example, I mean, and I'm just going to be specific about what that workload looks like, but so I got home, um, you know, and, and Dad's on, you know, been working a full week, so that's, he's sort of 50-hour weeks on a good week, and then... Um, of that week, he'll have two nights on call. So being totally available from the, the end of his working day to the morning, could be up all night, go back to work the next day. This particular week, he's on call for the entire weekend, 72 hours. Works again a full week, another two nights on call that week. So in total, it's like 120 hours. We worked it out on top of your normal full-time week. And in that, it's also, you're then dealing, you know, that particular weekend, there were two traumatic incidences, which I think a normal person would need time to debrief and recover from, um, you know, and especially in small communities, they're people that you know, you know, so they're not just, you know, randoms coming into hospital and going out again, it's, you know, your friends. And I think um, there's just, it just seems to me just a completely under-resourced system and I feel more comfortable, um, you know, ranting about it than Dad does. It. Yeah, and yeah. I think coming back, I was feeling worried that maybe I'd overstepped the mark and been a bit harsh, but... Having been back home for another two weeks, I'm like, nah. Then you know, I hope people read this and feel like something's to change. But, yeah. yeah. But the, the, the counterside of that is that I absolutely love rural medicine, and and it is a very no. That what, what Jesse just said is true, and yeah. and this, and, and yes. we don't look after our, ourselves or our, our other health professionals, you know, well enough. But it's a very privileged position. I mean, I love doing a really range, you know, great range of work in the community I, I know and love, and it's a very Privilege. It's a, it's, job, it's a but, very privileged but job. But that's why, that's but why it, you, you know, you believe it could be better, and I think that's mm. why you're such a passionate doctor. You know, it's not that you are all doom and gloom or it's, it's failing or it's, it's going to fail forever, but it's like it is, it's just important to recognise that, um, you know, it's a, they're playing such an important role in small communities and, um, you know, they're just normal people. And because of the way it's currently set up, we're not getting, mm. that, you know, there's a shortage of doctors, so... 
and funnily enough, you know, friends who are rural doctors would all say the same thing. I mean, they all love the job. Mm. They recognise the privilege of the mm. job, but they're also getting older and oh, yeah. don't and see a big they... conduit of people coming up wanting the job mm. and can't sustain it. Yeah, and it's going to be a real problem in 20 years' time. (laughs) That's enough ranting from me, sorry. (laughs) But it's not just, I think, um, that's why also talking about the loss of home Mm. and some of the the less heroic in capital letters, but that's not Mm. to diminish what you do, Mm. but the the ordinary and everyday tragedies and joys matter that's in Mm. the book. It's a beautiful read. we, I should have said at the beginning, aren't going to have questions now because we've got an opportunity to go out and, um, and talk and mix and mingle. Thanks very much for the, for the official launch next. But I was going to say a couple of things, and I think some people from CTV are here who want to say something. So just before I... Um, we thank Chesie and her father for this conversation. Um, all of us have been through a lot, and it's funny, the things, I can't actually say this bit, so that's what I'm saying. There's bits where you think, ooh, uh, in life at the moment, and it might be seven, eight years later, but it's big, and I think your mind only lets you take in some things at a pace that it can cope with sometimes. So Canterbury Support has a number, 0800 846, and I rang it to make sure it works, <laughs> and they are 24-7. But if you want an easier number for somebody to talk to, um, we have still refunded one element of uh, mental health that matters, which is need to talk, and you can either text or phone 1737. And apparently that's all you need to do, 1737, even if you're ringing off a normal phone. Um, but I think at this point, somebody from CTV, this is the unscripted part, is going to speak. One of the community reps is coming down. Several people. Okay, um, first of all, I'd like to say thank you very much for making this opportunity for us to speak today. Um, my name is Karen, and this is my brother David, and my daughter has snuck away somewhere. Oh, there she is, sitting down the front there, Alice. Um, sadly, we lost our sister and Alice's auntie, Susan Selway, who happened to be a clinical psychologist, so quite relevant to a lot of the discussion today. Um, and... Um, Obviously, she was in the CTV building on the 22nd of February when it collapsed. To us, the 22nd of February, 2011, it still feels so raw. It's as if it was yesterday. We as a family have had our own journey and our own struggle. um, And we continue to find our way forward in life um, with a lot of pain and anguish and at times much joy as well. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you, Jessie, and Chris, um, for this wonderful book. I'm so looking forward to reading it. 
Um, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Um, it's really, really important to us as a community. It's so valuable to all of us in terms of coming to terms with our grief and what we've been through. You've created not only just a story and a book, but a valuable and meaningful and touching memoir of what happened to your family on that tragic Tuesday and also subsequently and obviously earlier <laughs> as well. Um, it's really important that these experiences are recorded and acknowledged, really, really important. And on behalf of many of the CTV families, from the bottom of our hearts, right down here, <laughs> we would really like to thank every person who put their own life at risk to reach out and to help others on that tragic, tragic day. Whether you were a professional person responding or a person who took the initiative of your own, we thank you. Thank you so much, Chris, for everything that you did. Finding the good in adversity. We've heard a lot about that tonight, and it's a wonderful quality. Um, we continue as families to ask people to come together and to seek accountability for what happened that day. We want to make sure that the lives of all New Zealanders, like those of us in this room, are not put at risk again in that same way as they were that day. Whether it was as a responder or as a person in the building, we don't want to have to go there. We don't need to. If you would like to talk about the CTV accountability and making New Zealand safer, and that might be from a rural GP perspective, <laughs> um, and supporting our rural GPs, um, or what, in whatever way, please feel free to come forward um, and come and talk with us. We're here, we want to hear from you. Um, and it's part of a really important journey for all of us as New Zealanders. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Karen and family. It seems like a very good place to close. Um, Chesie, you've done a very brave thing, and sometimes it takes a new voice and a different perspective to actually cast a light on a community and how it copes. And I was thinking about it, um, I've got the earlier version, but the, um, I was thinking about the title as I was uh, going home this evening. Um, it is a very affirming thing that we share that you have created in this book of this concept of we can make a life. And so on behalf of all of us, I wish you well with the book and thank, thank you. you for writing oh, it. Outside. So we'll pop up. Okay. Yes. Okay. We'll take you a copy of the